looking in the book of Numbers this morning. This Advent season, we have been looking at shadows of the Savior. And so we've been looking specifically at Old Testament texts that give a foreshadowing of Jesus and his arrival. And back a couple of weeks ago, we looked in Genesis. We started at the beginning in chapter 3, verse 15, where God is giving out curses because of sin. And in the middle of one of those curses, uh, he gives some hope, but he says that a particular offspring of Eve would crush the offspring, or the head, rather, of Satan. This was Jesus. In Jeremiah, we looked at last week, we were told about a day that was coming when a righteous branch would come out of uh, the line of David. He would sit on an eternal throne and he would rule in justice and in wisdom and in righteousness. In fact, his name meant the Lord is our righteousness. This was Jesus. Today, we're going to look at a more obscure pasture, pasture, passage, sorry, more obscure passage from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, specifically chapter 24. You can turn to that. Uh, this, this comes right in the middle of it's kind of a humorous story. It's it's kind of not if you really think about the whole theme of it, but it's kind of a humorous story because we've got a scared king, we've got a sneaky prophet, and then we've got a talking donkey. So you, that probably helps identify where we're going with this. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 will be our target verse here this morning, but let me kind of give a synopsis of the backstory for a few minutes, because that helps us understand, I think, what happens when we've got the donkey talking and some other things going on here, okay? Um, so Balak is the king of Moab, and they're enemies of Israel. He saw that Israel was regularly victorious in battle, right? And so he realized, I can't take these people. If they come against me, I'm not going to be able to overcome them. And so he comes up with a plan. He sends messengers to a guy named Balaam to request that he come to Balak and curse the Israelites on his behalf. All right? Apparently, Balaam had a reputation for doing favors for people, if nothing else, but it was for a price. Numbers chapter 22, if you want to just thumb back there, verse 6, Balak says, Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So King Balak's messengers set off to talk with him. And they take with what verse 7 of chapter 22 calls fees for divination with them. Okay, you can probably see why we might say that Balaam was kind of more or less a diviner for hire. The right price, he might be able to bless or curse someone. Now, he's not what we would consider a good prophet, even though he actually did seek the words of the Lord to speak. Um, but he wasn't a good prophet because his heart was not right with God. We have confirmation, we'll talk about this in just a moment, from some of the New Testament authors about why Balaam um, was not a good prophet. So on his way to see the king, Balaam's own donkey, we're just kind of fast-forwarding here, Balaam's own donkey stops in the middle of the road and refuses to move. Well, Balaam gets angry. You guys ever been angry at an animal like that before? Maybe you've got horses, maybe you've got a donkey. Pigs, I think just about any animal might do this sort of thing, but a donkey 
um, was here. And he's, the reason why is because he saw a giant angel with a big sword in the road. And he wasn't moving. Balaam didn't see it, and so he started hitting his donkey. Well, the donkey speaks. And he basically says, why are you doing this? So imagine that, that pig, Paul, that wouldn't move now speaking to you. Um, you might have some other words to say to the donkey or to the pig once he starts speaking. But um, Balaam goes to the king and he says, look, he just has this encounter with an angel. And he says, look, I can only speak what the Lord tells me to say. Okay. Now, despite that, Balak, the king, he tries to bribe Balaam to curse the Israelites three different times. With each time, God instead turning it around and giving Balaam the words to bless Israel and not curse them. And so the king, understandably, is mad. So if you look at chapter 24, verses 10 and 11, it says, And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And behold, you've blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. So so the king is telling Balaam that it's really God's fault that Balaam wasn't going to get paid for this. You're not going to get rewarded because you listened to God and he stole your reward. But in verse 12, Balaam Reminds the king, he says, look, I, I can only speak what God tells me to speak. I can't go beyond the words that God gives. So then, in verses twenty or 15 through 25, it's kind of like this last parting gift to Balak. God speaks prophetically through Balaam and gives Balak kind of a glimpse into his own future, into his own doom. But also, one more blessing on the people of Israel. Another blessing. And so some of your Bibles call them oracles. This is the fourth oracle that what we want to look at briefly today. And so, so what we've seen so far is not really been too condemning for Balaam, right? He's, he said what God's told him to. He hasn't gone beyond it. He didn't change that message to try to get Balak to like him or to pay him or anything like that, at least in the story that we have read or looked at so far. But New, Auth- New Testament authors reveal a little bit more about him. I think these are in your notes. You can see three different ones I referenced here. Peter talks about Balaam, and he compares false teachers to them in 2 Peter 2.15. And he says, Balaam loved the wages of wickedness. In Jude chapter 1, Jude associates Balaam with the selling of one's own soul for financial gain. So money is still a problem here. And then in Revelation 2.14, Jesus himself, himself speaks about Balaam. When he warns the church in Pergamum of their sin, he says this, There's some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now we see the real full picture of who Balaam really was. And if you look in in, uh, Numbers chapter 25, the next chapter over, we see the sad story of the results of Israel falling prey to Balaam and Balak's enticements to sin. They used a couple of the oldest tricks in Satan's playbook, idolatry and sexual immorality. And these things tore the people of God apart from the inside out. If you, 
if the enemy can't curse God's people directly, like Balak was trying to do, he'll find any number of alternative methods to tear them apart, usually appealing to our most sinful fleshly desires. Now, let's go back to our verse, chapter 24, verse 17. This is right in the middle of this blessing that Balaam is giving. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Now, any good public speaker saves the hook until the very end to draw it all together. I'm not a really good public speaker, so I've just been telling you the whole time, this is Jesus. This is a prophecy of Christ. I want to explain this morning how it is that this is a prophecy about Jesus. Now, at this point in the story, in Numbers, King Balak, he's already kind of gotten mad. You know, he slapped his hands together. He said, get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. He probably wishes he'd never called Balaam in the first place. Certainly now he wishes Balaam would just keep his mouth shut. (laughs) I told you to leave. Now you're going to bless him one more time. But what does Balaam say? He says, I see him, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. So who is he talking about? When is he talking? Where, where is he talking about? Well, I think he starts with the when here, and we're not told explicitly the who or the when, but whoever it is, it's not some someone who's going to show up relatively soon. That's what he says. He says, this man is not near. Balaam sees him, but not now. So it's not somebody right there on the scene or who would probably be there shortly. It's a future day that Balaam is prophesying about here. So what about what about the who? Is it Israel? Is it God's people that he's talking about? Well, I don't think we can say that it is. If you kind of skip back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, Balaam is literally looking over the tents of the people of Israel with his own eyes. So I don't think he can say, well, I see them afar off. They're right there. He's not talking about the people of Israel. Maybe the description of this him, this man, will help with identification. Let's look at what's said about him. Look there in the middle of the verse 17. He says, a star. He is a star that shall come out of Jacob. Then it says, he's a scepter that shall rise out of Israel. This scepter is going to do a couple of things. It's going to crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. Now, right away, you're probably recognizing some of the lineage here. The house of Jacob, Israel, it says. This man was going to be a star and a scepter. And guess what? Both of those names are titles given to the Messiah. Both of them. He's called the morning star in Revelation 22.16 for his glory, his brightness, his splendor. He's considered a star because of the light that comes into the world through him. The bright effect of his grace in our lives and the blessings of his light to all mankind. I love how John captures the idea of Christ as the light at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. 
And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That last phrase, the darkness has not overcome it, can also be translated the darkness has not comprehended it. The darkness has not obtained it. So for those walking in darkness, the light cannot be understood. Jason mentioned this in his prayer earlier about how we're veiled to the truth of the gospel. There's a veil in front of us. That's darkness. And there's really no desire in that kind of a person to understand the truth, to pursue the light. But the crazy thing is, when God lifts that veil, when God reveals it, the light to a person, they grab hold of it and they hang on for dear life because the light is the truth of the gospel, of who Jesus is. And that's all we have to hold on to. So Jesus is not only called a star or the light, he's called a scepter here. Now, Jason mentioned, who holds a scepter? A king, right? There's no other, there's no higher royalty than a king. And so the scepter symbolizes this. It's used to symbolize God, God's rule. Psalm 45 verse 6 Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So the Bible uses the word scepter to communicate Jesus' complete authority over his creation. That's what the word scepter is referring to here. He's from the line of David, and he will hold the scepter and be given charge over all the nations. This is in direct fulfillment of Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. That says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's the prophecy that Jesus as a scepter is coming to fulfill. This man in Numbers 24 would come forth from Jacob, from Israel. And he did. He was from the house of Abraham. He was a descendant of Jacob, of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David who came out of Bethlehem. You'll remember, that's why that's why. I almost said Adam and Eve. That's why Mary and Joseph were were headed to Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Because Joseph was from the line of David, and that was his hometown. This is where Jesus came. Numbers 24, verse 17 continues. He says what the scepter is going to do. It's going to crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, some take sons of Sheth to mean some famous king among the Moabites or maybe uh, the Edomites or maybe even the, the Egyptians, but I think most people think it refers to Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, whose lineage leads to Abraham. And so used here, the idea of the sons of, Sheth, of Seth would mean all nations because all people came from that lineage, the son of the first man, Adam. So we could say it this way, this man shall rule over all the children of men. All of men. And this would be completely fulfilled in Christ, wouldn't it? When he will have rule and authority and all people will be subject to him and his kingdom will be everlasting to everlasting from shore to shore. I want to end this morning with one more quick look at the scepter and what that means for us. If you remember the story of Esther, 
There's a king in that story, and Esther is going into the courts to see him. And the concern is that, like Jason described to the kids, if the king does not raise his scepter to you, then you aren't going to see him maybe ever again. Your life may end. So in the story, we know, or if you've heard it, that the scepter is raised to Esther and she's welcomed in. And that's part of God's redemption for his people there. But when the king raises his scepter to her, it's a sign that he accepts her. It's a sign that he welcomes her into his presence. Here's the thing. Here's the correlation this morning. Christ functions the same way as our scepter. God extends him to us. He offers the free gift of salvation through Jesus. Jesus is the reason that we are welcomed into the presence of God. God holds him up in the same way. Now, for his enemies, when God holds the scepter, it's a fearful thing. All power, all authority comes from that. Without God's welcoming scepter, you will be cast out from the presence of the king. And this time, it's the king of the universe. But for those who know God through his son, Jesus, the scepter is one of the most comforting ideas that I think we could find. It tells us that even despite the craziness and the evil of this world, our God reigns supreme and his scepter will never be defeated. Christ was born as a little baby in a manger, but he has brought light into the world and he now rules it with complete authority. So this is really a beautiful thought for those who have been welcomed into God's presence through Jesus Christ, through faith. Guys, he's welcoming you into his presence now, today, by faith in Jesus. So in order to receive that, we turn away from ourselves. We turn away from our sin, the things that are keeping us back from understanding the gospel and seeing the truth. We turn away from thinking that we can reach heaven on our own and we turn in faith to the Savior. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verse 40. He says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on Him should have eternal life. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. Guys, Jesus is not just a baby in a manger that we celebrate this time of year. He is God in the flesh who died in your place to forgive sin and to welcome you into the presence of the King. It's true for all who give their heart to him. He gives them eternal life. When we look to the Son and believe, we get eternal life. That life can be yours today if you believe. Let's pray. Lord, it's a blessing to think that in your wisdom, that in your mercy, that in your grace, you have made a way for us to be brought back into your presence. Lord, we do an awful lot to mess that up. We gossip, we lie, we steal, we deceive. Lord, and every one of these things condemns us. It causes us to be separated from you. It causes us to be cast out of your presence. And yet, Lord, you've given Jesus, born in a manger, but born to die. Lord, so that all those who put their faith in him and not in themselves... When they look to him, they will have eternal life. And this is the hope that we have at Christmas. This is the hope that we have year-round. Lord, that in Christ, as the scepter, you've raised him up and welcomed people back in to your presence. 
What a joy. What a blessing. God, that no matter what craziness is happening outside our doors, Lord, we know that you have complete control as King, as Lord. Lord, and not only that, but you've chosen to share your love with sinners. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have made a way so that we could be welcomed back into your presence. And so, Lord, I pray that by faith we would look to the Son and believe today. That the veil would be lifted, the light would shine in the darkness of our hearts, and we might be set free. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.